The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, here with my producer, Ricky Herrera. Good morning, Ricky. Good morning, Vic. Good morning, everyone. How are you, man? I am well, ready to start the week yourself. Doing great. Uh, just want to thank everyone listening online, on their radio, for the donations you have made to KPFK during this kickoff the summer fun drive. Absolutely. Without our listeners, we wouldn't be here. Uh, much, much gratitude and love to all of you. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's update everyone on some um, some big headlines around the world and locally. Let's start with Russian President Vladimir Putin, uh, who has just vowed to punish uh, anyone behind uh, an uprising. It's an armed uprising uh, after the head of the Wagner private military group launched an uh, an insurrection, claimed control of the military facilities in two Russian cities. Uh, and is warning Putin that they could come to Moscow. So uh, there is movement within Russia now to uh, overthrow Putin. Uh, what do you think about that? You think that's going to happen or even possible? I'm probably the last person to to speak on something like this, but I think it's interesting that this private military group is what they're calling it, correct? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, to try and go head to head with a nation like Russia, pretty blank and cool, particularly uh, someone like Putin, who is not really considered a, a stand up guy. Um, but in terms of the, the success that can come from this, it's one of those wait and sees. I, I remember the coup that uh, took place in Turkey. Uh, a few years back, and that was shut down pretty quick. And uh, a lot of those uh, individuals were given death sentences. But yeah, it's it's tough to mess with a with a dictator or dictators because Erdogan of Turkey uh, is uh, just like Putin. I mean, there have there have been successful coups in the past. You know, you go back to um, uh, Castro back in 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 the 50s and mm -hmm. and a few other ones but i i don't see this uh coming out um on the side of humanity right okay well speaking of humanity i'm i'm i was really pleased to uh read this story and i know that uh seemingly one would ask why would i be why would i be excited about people being arrested but let me just tell you the story so uh, just uh, this past weekend, uh, Council Member uh, Nithya Raman and Hugo Soto Martinez were both arrested uh, during a hotel workers protest near LAX. Unite Here Local 11, you know, I've interviewed representatives from there. Um, they represent about 32,000 hotel workers and they were uh, picketing um, on Century Boulevard by LAX. And 
you know, to have two council members, high profile ones, be willing to be arrested brings a lot of publicity to their cause because I'm, you know, I'm I'm big, big supporter of unions. And, you know, the especially this union, they're some of the hardest working people. They work in hotels and restaurants and parks and, and such. And most of them are not earning a living wage. I mean, even we're not working full time. Most of them can't afford to live in, in the city of LA. So, you know, and of course these corporations, you know, their bottom line is a lot more important. Their executives, their CEOs, their C-suite people are taking home seven figure salaries and yet uh, they don't want to pay or they claim they can't afford to pay more to their, well, their front lines who are doing the hardest of it. So it takes away from their personal bottom line. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, they need a second yacht or a new Bentley, you know, that they're not willing to uh, sacrifice. So yeah, kudos to um, council members Rahman and uh, Soto Martinez for uh, for standing up for uh, Unite Here Local 11. I really like that. And and, you know, Amazon, Starbucks, both of them, the, a lot of their employees are trying to unionize. Some have. And, uh, of course, we've heard of efforts to stop that. Starbucks keeps closing stores. Of course, the, the reason they bring is, you know, public safety that they're closing. But not according to others who say that they're closing them because they're unionizing. So I'm behind unions and people uh, making a living wage. I mean, our minimum wage alone is just uh, absurd. And is that sentiment so hard to grasp? I mean, think about it. Mm-hmm. You you literally just said, I'm, I'm behind people who want to make a living wage. Mm-hmm. I mean, h- how effed up is that, that you even well, have to say that? <laughs> yeah. Right, so mean, l- l- let me just give... Uh, friendly reminder to uh, our listeners um according to a we and we've talked about these figures in past shows but according to a, a 2023 study so a recent study by uh, the UC Berkeley Labor Center the state pays more than 68% of state employees represented by SEIU local 1000 uh, they pay them wages so low that they can't afford to support a family of two in California. I got a couple quotes uh, from some of the people who were at the rally. This worker said it would be nice not to have to work 64 hours a week, but I have to work that much. Uh, she's a supervisory cook at a state prison. She went on to say, I can't afford a one-bedroom apartment. It'll take my entire paycheck. Wow. I mean, it's hard enough. I mean, the stress of working in a prison alone, and yet if you're working 60 plus a week and you still can't afford a one-bedroom apartment, I mean, wow. You know, and we're, we're the wealthiest nation in the world. Yeah, and and this is where I think the higher-ups really need to start getting involved. And when I say higher-ups, I'm talking about Sacramento, um, Newsom. Uh, I'm I'm talking about Washington. There there needs to be balance uh, in this inflation. This 
this balance that is uh, clearly tilted one way in terms of income ratio to uh, how the housing market needs to be addressed quickly, like ASAP. Yeah, well, particularly uh, in California, I know it's happening across the country, but particularly in places like California and New York, where it's very apparent. So I, I think it's imperative that change as quickly as possible. Well, you're right. Unfortunately, there are a lot of powers that be the ones that benefit from inflation and benefit from low wages that are working very hard to make sure that that doesn't happen, especially on a federal level. Um, at least in California, we do have some elected officials that uh, that do care and are trying to change things, but it's it's not it's not quick enough. I mean, it I hasn't know, been quick enough. At the federal level, they need to start talking about this. They talk, but it's just talk for the most part. You know, it's just mostly just uh, rhetoric and sound bites, and uh, you know, just public relations, um, and then. That's it. I mean, they just, especially in the next year, we're going to, or year and a half, I should say, we're going to hear a lot of this because of the elections. Everyone's going to promise the world, but uh, most of them, most of them will not uh, follow through. But yeah, speaking of, of corporations squeezing the workers, I think you, you've been interested in talking about uh, Google and other companies too, about their uh, return to to the office policy. Uh, yes, Google and Citibank in particular, they are clamping down. And when I say clamping down, they basically want to end uh, working from home. They want people in the office. Now, Vic, someone like you, who is highly productive, who has been working from home since 2017, and prior to that, worked in an office. I don't want to talk about Google and, and Citibank. I want to talk about the larger discussion about working from home as opposed to working in an office. Uh, the idea of productivity, uh, you know, where do you stand on this from your experience? Good question. So I, I can't fathom going back to the office anymore. You know, I've been at home for a while. And as you said, I'm, I'm pretty self-motivated. And uh, I get a lot done at home. Uh, and I can't, you know, I can't even imagine going back to the office. Just the commute alone, it's just too much. The other day, I, I drove somewhere, it took me an hour. And I was just reminded that commuting in LA for work is just really awful. But I have to say, I'm not one that thinks everyone is cut up to work from home. I may have not been even when I was younger. I was ready to do it when I started doing it. I think for certain industries, certain type of people, certain people, certain responsibilities and such, uh, people can be more productive at the office, you know, and and the opposite is true too. So I think it's it's kind of an individual company, individual person kind of a thing, but obviously companies can't make rules, uh, different rules for everyone. I think it's good to have flexibility for companies to have sort of give options. I know like the LA, LA County, LA County lets people or some divisions lets people um, voluntarily work from home like one day a week or tw two days a week. 
uh, some LA County uh, employees can work 10 hours a day, but then uh, take Friday off. So I think those kinds of flexibilities are good, but I don't know if a blanket thing can work for everyone and every company, depending on uh, what what it is that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I don't, obviously, there are probably people out there who take advantage of the working from home life, work one hour, watch Bridgerton for 30 minutes, uh-huh. go back to work for an hour. Uh, so anyways, uh, so Citigroup, uh, they warned managers for their over 240,000 employees that their performance ratings and or pay packages could be impacted if they don't return to the office. The Citigroup in particular, uh, a lot of their branches and uh, uh, places of business uh, across the country, they are have implemented what is a, called a hybrid work situation. A lot of their employees are coming into the office two to three days a week, and the other two to three days a week, are they are working from home. But Citigroup is warning their managers and the employees under their managers that a return to the office could impact pay packages Mm. and uh, performance ratings. Interesting. Yeah. So that's where we are (laughs) in 2023, the uh, work from home race, work from home gate, whatever you want to call it, um, could be coming to an end for for a lot of organizations. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I think... You know, again, it just depends on the company, what what it is that they're doing. I can see some people abusing that privilege of working from home, while I think some can be even more productive from home. So uh, my just wish is the companies are, are more flexible and give options and then evaluate people, you know, just see how they're doing. You know, did their performance go up or down or, you know, that kind of stuff. Let's uh, end it talking about council member current price. Yeah, so we talked about uh, current price last week. He is facing some criminal charges and his L.A. Council seat has been in question. But some recent news came out uh, regarding that recommendation to suspend him. And that is going to come to a halt. We will not find out anything before August 21st, if I'm correct. That's sometime in August, essentially. Yes, to leave that seat, to leave that vote in limbo, I don't think it's the smartest idea. Not really fair to the constituents. Yeah. Well, it's called bureaucracy. So um, we'll see what happens. Uh, LA City Council's had uh, quite a few scandals um, lately. I don't uh, envy uh, Mayor Bass for having inherited a lot of this and has to work through it, but uh, she's doing a great job. This is Jackson Brown. I've been listening to KPFK since I was a teenager. Then and now, KPFK has been a lifeline to vital information without which we would be at the mercy of corporate media and commercial interests that control it. There are so many programs that I've listened to regularly and so many instances when I've come upon the unexpected, the unknown, and the sublime. Join me and become a member today at kpfk.org. Now more than ever before, it's essential to keep supporting KPFK and the free exchange of ideas and cultural viewpoints that foster our democracy. And the number 
which is the only number I know actually by heart, 818-985-5735. KPFK. I came for inspiration. I came looking for truth. The Blunt Post with Vic. Sven Erik Reis is a Norwegian author, activist, and a school principal. His activism centers around Armenia and Artsakh uh, and creating awareness about the Armenian genocide and Azerbaijan's current genocidal campaign against the indigenous Armenians of Artsakh, formerly known as Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, he has published two books uh, about the subjects of Armenia and Artsakh. First one is called Hayastan, which means Armenia in Armenian. Uh, Hayastan, why I love Armenia. And the second one is called 44 Days in Artsakh. Good morning, Sven. Thank you for being on the Blunt Post with Vic this morning or at night for you in Norway. <laughs> yeah, it's seven, seven o'clock. I'm fine. Thank you. And th thank you for having me on your show. It's fantastic. It's entirely my pleasure. I truly mean that. I'm so excited to have, I'm embarrassed first to have not known too much about you. I'd heard about you, but didn't know much, and I'm so excited that uh, I finally have uh, have learned a lot about you, read about you, and I'm just so enthralled and impressed with uh, what you do. On top of being very grateful, you know, you're Norwegian, obviously. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, one hundred percent. And uh, and uh, you know, you have a, a special kinship with uh, with the Armenians who are going through the hardest periods of our history, if you will, uh, since the Armenian genocide, during a time when most of the world is either unaware or just apathetic to what's happening right now since the 2020, well, when Azerbaijan and Turkey invaded the Republic of Artsakh, uh, massacred over 5,000 indigenous Armenians, uh, and the uh, campaigns of violence and hate and disinformation that's followed uh, and up to now. It's been over three months since Azerbaijan has blocked the only road from the Republic of Artsakh to Armenia and to the rest of the world, uh, essentially trying to starve and freeze 120,000 indigenous Armenians um, and ethnically cleanse them from their, from their homeland uh, of millennia. Uh, while most of the world watches in deafening silence, including world leaders and agencies who are supposed to uh, intervene in this types of situations. But you've done extraordinary things to bring attention to what's happening. But before we go into any details and details of your work, uh, I just want to hear your assessment and your perception of what's happened and what's happening. Right now in, in Artsakh, uh, well, it is very difficult to, to get a full picture of actually what's happening because, um, I mean, they close the internet. I, I, I don't have a chance of talking to my friends there because I know a lot of people in Artsakh, including journalists, who are still staying there. Now, during the war two years ago, almost three years ago, uh, I had daily contact with a lot of people, with soldiers, with doctors, with uh, civilians, who actually refused to leave Artsakh during the war, um, who stayed in Stepanakert in the in the bomb rooms, and they they tried to uh, get on as good as possible. But they called me and they sent me messages, and then I could write a book about that and, and show 
at least Norwegians and Swedes, what was going on. Uh, this time, with a blockade, it's very difficult to get something uh, straight out Armenians in Artsakh. So um, mostly I get this from uh, yeah people who have been there or people from the Red Cross and from Armenians who know, like you. Um, and I'm shocked. I've You know, uh, in Europe, we're talking about boycotting Russia and Belarus, which I agree totally. We should boycott them on everything. But the thing is that we never boycott Azerbaijan. Now they refuse to let um, Russia and Belarus take part in the Eurovision Song Contest, which is a big event here in Europe. But Azerbaijan, oh yeah, you can participate. Even if we know that you cheat every year in order to get more points than you deserve, that's not the worst thing Azerbaijan does. But I mean, keeping 120,000 Armenians captured, um, not having medicine, not having food, uh, seeing to the, that they starve. Now, this is one of the one of the the things that you that can make you call something a genocide. It's one of these levels that actually uh, that actually qualifies for a real genocide, according to genocide scholars. So this goes on. Now we had this genocide from 1915, 1920 um, uh, about that, uh, and Azerbaijan is actually uh, keeping it up. So this is this is really really bad. I talked to a lot of politicians in Norway. And they pee their pants when I say that we should do something about Azerbaijan because Norway has invested a lot of money in Azerbaijan in oil and gas. Uh, and now the European Union is buying gas and oil from Azerbaijan because we are boycotting Russia. And it's all really shitty. Even though, let me just interrupt you, some of it is Russian oil laundered through Azerbaijan. Exactly, exactly. And that's what we do. And we're very happy about it sounds like. But I know politicians in the European Union who actually work very hard to get this on the agenda and try to convince the others to do something. And I think most people agree this is terrible, but their hands are kind of tight. They don't want to do anything. And they can. If they want to, they can. Uh, but it's kind of sacrificing 120,000 Armenians again so that they can get their gas and their oil and, and be on good terms with Azerbaijan. Even if we know that that Ilham Aliyev was actually crowned as the king of dictators some years ago in Time magazine. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very, it's a horrible situation. And um, very little we can do other than donate money to the serious organizations to try to help. Uh, I know that trucks are coming from Armenia trying to pass uh, the blockade and they have to they have to give uh, some money under the table, so to speak, to Russian uh, peace activists or peace keepers uh, to get that that food through the corridor. And, and I think it's really, yeah, it sucks big time, really bad. Yeah, I'm glad you said it. It's really people are starting to say that this is the continuation of the Armenian genocide, that the yeah, Armenian yeah. genocide didn't really end. It just had a little bit of a pause for a few decades, because when you look at uh, Turkey and Erdogan and his regime supporting Azerbaijan and carrying this out, you know, it's uh, it's just uh, another, you know, part of their pan-Turkic ambition uh, of ethnic cleansing and uh, connecting not only Azerbaijan and Turkey, but all of the Turkic nations. It's really surreal, and I don't use that word lightly or frivolously. It's surreal to, to see this happen in 2023, and most of the world is just um, sort of either pretends they don't see it or make excuses as to why that can, they can't do uh, anything about it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. 
I am your host, Vic Jorami, and you are listening to my interview with Norwegian author and activist Sven Erik Reis. Let's go back to pre-invasion uh, of Artsakh. Your first book, uh, you know, which is Hayastan, Why I Love Armenia. And for those that don't know, Hayastan is means Armenia in Armenian. And you wrote that in 2018. I did, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that and this inspiration. Yeah, well, what happened was that I had uh, read about the Armenian genocide for ages. I'd been studying it. I went to Princeton to learn. I went to Amsterdam to uh, different universities where they have genocide experts to listen to what they had to say, their lectures, and I was really interested because it all started off when my dad gave me the book, uh, 40 Days of Musadag, and now I was only 16 at the time, and it kind of triggered something that I thought, this I, I, I need to know everything about this genocide, uh, especially because the Turks deny it. I thought that was just horrendous, and I thought, how can they do that? And uh, so um, when I started studying, I went to these different universities, studied history just to learn more about the genocide. But at the time, as Armenia was part of the Soviet Union, there was no way to go there. So all I knew actually in 2015 about Armenia was the genocide. And then uh, some Armenians in Norway, because we have about a thousand Armenians living here, uh, they said that, okay, please remember it's the 100th commemoration day. Uh, 2015, 24th of April, are you sure you don't want to go? And I thought, okay, this is my chance. I will go and I want to do it alone. And my boyfriend, my family, my friends wanted to join, but I said, I, I really need this experience on my own. Because now I said that I'm uh, so into Armenia and the Armenian genocide and the history, and I need, really need to check out what this is. I need to know about the people, the language, the food, everything. Uh, so I need to do it on my own. And I was really, I thought it's going to be very embarrassing now if I hate Armenia, if I don't like it at all, since I've been talking so much about it. But it was, I mean, it it actually surpassed any any thought that I, you know, any idea of this fantastic country. It was, it was, it can't be described. I mean, this guy, I, I called to, to book a, a hotel room and I thought, okay, this is my first international call to somebody in Armenia. I had learned 100 words and I used them as, as good as I could. Uh, of course, that meant that saying some words than switching to English, but it went fine. And they gave me the goddamn suite in, in um, Anya Plaza Hotel because there was that. nothing else left. Everybody else was going to Armenia during the 24th or during that week. And uh, he picked me up at the airport. He served me uh, Armenian um, uh, bubbles, you know, champagne from Carlos Winery. And, you know, I had a blast. Uh, I, I stayed for four weeks, even in the middle of all this, a, a Turkish friend. I, I had a Turkish friend when I was little called Ergin. Uh, we went to school together and I picked up Turkish words and we had a lot of fun. And when he heard about me going to Armenia, he called me and said, are you crazy? Armenians lie about everything. This is terrible. You can't do this. And I said, well, uh, we are blood brothers. We exchanged blood at, at six years old. He moved back to Turkey. And I said, well, if you can't understand what this is, and if you don't understand that you really have to read the other history, the real history, instead of, of, of uh, Turkish lies that you learn in school, I can't be your friend. And I said, can we just agree to disagree? I said, I can't agree to disagree with somebody denying a genocide. It's just like denying the Holocaust. Nobody does that. Well, some people do, but it's not the way that a whole country does it. 
And um, I hung up and I was being actually like a, a little girl because he kept calling and I, I didn't pick up. I No, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. And then the guy appeared. He'd taken the bus via Georgia to Armenia to Yerevan the day before. Oh, wow. the yeah. He stood there and he had given a message in the hotel. Your brother is waiting for you at Siskernagabert. And I thought, okay, my brother in Norway. Yeah, what is he doing here? So I went up there and there he was. And together we actually figured out everything, went to the Armenian University, American Armenian University, talked to a lot of people, and he turned, you know, he was like, of course, there was a genocide. Wow. And he loved wow. it. He loved Armenia. We had we had a blast, you know. We even went to Nakichevan and, and we were taken by by Armenian soldiers actually who come and came and picked us up. Because we thought the moment we entered Artsakh, we can never go to Azerbaijan. Let's go now. We have the chance. Right, so we right. had mopeds. We drove on this road in Yerask. There is a road directly into Azerbaijan. No military that we could see. And we drove there. And two Armenian soldiers came, picked us up. And they were really furious. They said, you want to get killed? Are you totally crazy? And I said, well, we just wanted to see Nakichevan. It's Armenian, isn't it? Well, it's supposed to be, he said. And then I kept on you know, repeating all these funny words in Armenian that I knew. And he said, fine, you can go on, but never enter Azerbaijan again. So we did so many nice things, um, talked to many people. And this guy, of course, he, he I was popular in Armenia. He was even more popular coming from Turkey, excusing his country for having done this. So, um, yeah, it was it was just fantastic. And when I come ho- came home, uh, this travel agency called me and said that you should take groups to Armenia because you could teach people a lot. And I said, actually, I want to keep Armenia to myself. But if you let me make the whole program, history, genocide, denial, wineries, okay, I will do it. So I took, um, during the last eight years, I think between 12 and 15 groups of Norwegians. Yeah, it's been fantastic because they all love it. When When they come back from Armenia, they're actually Armenian activists. They, I mean, we have so much contact. They talk to everybody. And, uh, well, the funny story is that they fell in love with Armenian wine because that wine is really special, and everybody knows that. But in Norway, we have this system where you have to go to liquor stores uh, that are run by the state, and they have a certain number of wines from certain countries, but none, n- not one from Armenia. Right. So I told right. them, let's all go and ask for Armenian wine and see what happens. So we all went. And I kept calling every day to this customer service asking for Armenian wine. But the point is, there's the same guy there. He picks up the phone all the time. So I had to change my accent, my dialect, to make him understand. And now today we have three brands of Armenian wine. It's not enough, but at least we have that. So, so, uh, yeah, lots of funny things happened, actually. You're you're a one-man revolution. (laughs) So significant. I mean, I know I'm just... I'm saying it lightly, but I don't take it lightly. I think what you're, what you've done, what you're doing is just extraordinary. It gives me a lot back. You know, my best friends are in Armenia. One of my, my, the very best friend that I met the first time I was there, his name is Tigran. He calls me Tigran too, because we are two Tigraner. And, um, and he, he took me around everywhere. I was with his family. And then he went to war in Artsakh. And he was actually taken as a prisoner of war there. And uh, he was molested. You know, they, they, um, he lost uh, three teeth. His ankle was broken. There was a lot of things going on. And actually, my Turkish friend managed to get the guy out. 
because he went to Azerbaijan and he did something. Um, I can't I can't reveal it because the Azeris would prob- probably be after him. But actually, I think he saved my friend Tigran from uh, being killed, or at least uh, having to stay there for a long time. And and you're you have an Armenian name, which is Tigran, right? Yeah, Tigran, yeah, Tigran Van, because I love this uh, lake called Van. Now I don't, I don't. Maybe you won't believe me, but Tigran is is my well one of two favorite Armenian names of all time for for boys, Tigran and Aram. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's such a since small world that's fantastic um, so i love i love um uh, i love your book hayastan why i love armenia and then in 2020 after the invasion of artsakh you wrote 44 days in artsakh and for those that don't know artsakh uh formerly known as nagorno karabakh which is its sort of uh soviet relic name that was given to it by the soviet union half Russian, half Turkic, but uh, the proper name is Artsakh. It's been Artsakh since 9th century BCE. So you wrote the book, uh, 44 Days in Artsakh. Yeah, and that was, uh, I wasn't planning on writing another book because this first one is actually about everything I did in Armenia, all my contacts, uh, the, the travel, lots of funny situations. And also a part that is really academic about the genocide, where I was really, really careful in in um, uh, showing all my sources and everything, dates, and you know what every person that I talked to had said, uh, and what I've read, and I even used two Turks as the best sources, and that's um, Tamer Akcham. You probably know him, and there's another one, Umir uh, Ungur, in in the Netherlands who are Turks and who had had access to the files in Turkey in Turkish before. Some of them were burned, and to actually tell the truth about the genocide, and they keep um, actually they they are investigating. They're still investigating. Interestingly enough, now there is more investigations going on about the Armenian genocide than the Holocaust, because the Armenian genocide is not yet recognized by the ones who did it. So that's interesting. But anyway, I made this uh, within the book. You know, there is a thing about that, and also a bit about the Artsakhian history. But the rest is actually all the things I did in Armenia and how fantastic everything is. And the Artsakh book, that was actually because a friend in Armenia called me and said, please write something. I wrote articles in in all the papers in Norway. And um, then I thought, well, why the hell? I have a week off from my, my work. I'll start writing because they all called me. I got all the information, you know, straight from uh, what was going on. Even an, uh, a doctor from LA called uh, Antablian, I don't remember his first name, but he went voluntarily and he worked with soldiers and he posted things on Facebook. And I said, can I use this? Because it was just fantastic. And he said, yeah, use whatever you want. So he's in the book and other uh, Atsakians and other friends, uh, soldiers, uh, grandmothers, mothers. Uh, I had this campaign where I managed to raise ten thousand dollars, and I sent to uh, mothers who gave birth wow. during the war. I mean, people who had lost the father or uh, who had had to flee from uh, from Stepanakert. And I had a contact there that actually handed them money and diapers and, and things they needed. And uh, I saw that there was a lot of uh, people engaged in it here in Norway because. Ten thousand dollars is a lot of money for me just on Facebook, you know. So, uh, so that's incredible, uh, truly. Once again, this is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. 
I am your host, Vic Jurami, uh, here in the studio with uh, my producer, Ricky Herrera. And I've been interviewing uh, Norwegian author and activist Sven Erik Reis. Um, but let's take a break because we are in a fun drive and we need to raise some funds for the station uh, to ask you to support us, to ask you to stand for free speech radio for uh, this uh, great institution called KPFK that's been around since 1959. It's listener-sponsored, commercial-free. So we ask you to um, go to kpfk.org, uh, make a donation, help us during this fund drive so that we can continue to bring you uh, the the kind of programming that you're accustomed to. Your interview with Sven is exactly the reason why we need to keep this station running. A simple donation, a large donation, it doesn't matter. What KPFK needs is to keep going, to keep going forward, because this institution, as you said, has been around since 1959. And we are a listener-sponsored radio station, and we rely on our listeners to keep going. That's that's the bottom line. We don't want to do this, but it, it's a necessary. We're listener-sponsored radio. Thank you, kpfk.org. You can make a donation there. Check out some of the premiums if you'd like. But what we would like to think is the gift is KPFK. So please, kpfk.org, credit card, PayPal. Absolutely. We thank you in advance for your donation. And also thank you for the years of support that you've shown us. Uh, you have uh, made it possible for us to bring you this kind of programming year after year, and we want to continue this tradition, to continue the tradition of not accepting commercials, not accepting grants from, uh, you know, questionable corporations so that we can say what we want to say. We can we can have free speech. So help us out. Go to kpfk.org and uh, make a donation. Let's get back to your interview with Sven. And I think both of your books are available on Amazon, correct? First one. Uh, is or you they can send me they can find me on facebook and send me a, a question and i can i can manage to send some books over uh they had it in this april bookstore i think they still do yeah i've read in in glendale in yeah Hawaii. it's in glendale yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah they sold it there so. you know just really quick there are a few things i, I just want to sort of mention you know there have been during the genocide there were at least two that we know very high profile norwegians who helped many, many Armenians uh, survive and escape. One of them was uh, uh, Nansen, I believe, who was uh, instrumental in documenting and uh, helping Armenians survive and escape, uh, getting them visas to Norway. And uh, the next one was um, Biari. Who did Bjorn? Yes, Bjorn, Bjorn, yeah. Bjorn, Bjorn, who was... Yeah, yeah. Um, helped a lot of orphans, Armenian yeah. orphans, uh, during and after the genocide. So you're kind of uh, carrying the legacy of Norwegian philanthropists, uh, activists, allies who, um, you know, who are, are really friends of the Armenians. And, and you know, you're, you're definitely an honorary Armenian. I'm, I'm so, uh, I'm just so enthralled. And, you know, I, I just have to say this because normally, normally it may not be relevant or it may not seem relevant, but you're also a gay man who is, you know, happily partnered and all of that. And it's so important for 
people to know what intersectionality means, what shared trauma means, why those of us that are LGBTQ, like myself, why when something we, you know, we we see people suffer around the world for whatever reason, there's a certain wound that sort of activates it. It refreshed, you know, it may not be what we exactly experienced in our lives, but it all comes down to uh, freedom. Uh, it comes down to human rights, uh, right to self-determination. And so I think that's where the uh, similarities come in a lot of ways. My film, Motherland, is about the invasion of Artsakh, but at the very core of it, it's really about, anyone can, can relate to it, because it's about freedom, self-determination, human rights. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, a struggle that LGBTQ people have known uh, far too well uh, throughout the world, and we continue to uh, struggle with it and are challenged with it in varying degrees, depending on where you live. So I just I just think there, there's another layer of, of your story that's so interesting and so apropos and important to... Uh, to to include if you will yeah it is and and i was well my first book i actually come out to all armenians because i thought i'm not gonna deny that because things happened in armenia uh, that had a lot of connection to me being gay i met gay people there very nice ones i must say and um i heard about their destiny some of them others were happy but you know it was both ways and um, I was going to sell the book in Etzmiadzin, in the church. And they said, before we sell this book, we need uh, that one of these um, people read it first to see what it contains. And I thought, they're never going to sell that book. But they're selling it. And they're selling it like hell. Lots of people go Are to Are you serious? I'm serious. I they're love selling it. the book. And I was there last year, and I thought, well, they probably hid it on the shelves. No, it was easily found. And I asked the women, I said, I wrote this book. Could you please have this on your uh, cashier thing so that more people buy it? Of course. And they put it out there. So whether they skipped that chapter or whether they thought it was okay, I don't know. But of course, the book is not about all gay. But there is a chapter there saying that I'm worried about gays in Armenia because some of the people I met were really depressed. And the, the only thing they wanted to do was to get out of Armenia. And I'm against that. I don't want people to leave Armenia. So because I think the most important thing is that the strong people, the well-educated people, actually stay in Armenia and do the job for the country instead of going to I don't know France or Norway or wherever and disappear. So uh, I, I I do anything to make people have good lives. Uh, I in love Armenia. it. You just you don't cease to amaze me. Uh, I can't wait to go to Ejmiatzi next time in, I'm in Armenia and uh, ask them for your book. Yeah. That's just incredible. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you are listening to my interview with Norwegian author and activist Sven Erik Reis. Well, you know, I, this, I, I, can, I feel like I can talk to you for hours and hours. I'm, I'm just uh, thoroughly amazed. Um, those listening, uh, Sven's two books are Ayastan, Why I Love Armenia, 2018, and 44 Days in Artsakh. Uh, you can Google it and uh, go to... I know that that Ayastan, Why I Love Armenia is on Amazon for sure, 
the other okay, one, uh, 44 Days in Artsakh, could also be there. So just sort of look for it. Sven, do you want to add anything before we go? I just want to say that I think all Armenians and Armenians by hearts, or what I call myself, Armenian by choice, we have to stand together now and we have to do everything we can to save Artsakh. It's important. So I'll do everything from from uh, Norway. Even the, the ambassador in Stockholm from Armenia, I asked him, do you think there is a chance I could get an Armenian passport? And he said, yeah, you definitely qualify. But then we discussed it and I thought, there is no point in me having an Armenian passport because the moment I have that, Turkey and other areas are going to say, well, he's just, he's an Armenian, so he's just talking about his own people. I mean, there is more credibility, actually, that I'm 100% Norwegian, and I I fight for Artsakh and Armenia. So we'll leave that passport thing for now. But, uh, of course, I think everybody should contribute the best way they can, uh, raise awareness, talk about it, write about it. Uh, I think you probably already do over there in Glendale and in California. But uh, this is this is very, very important. Amen. And if Kim Kardashian is listening, please keep donating because that's very important. <laughs> yes, Kim, what's up with that? Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I think in in every which way, and I truly mean this, you've you've done more for uh, Armenia, Armenians than Kim could. And and no no disrespect to Kim. She's she's done a lot too, and I and I love and adore her, but you've mobilized thousands of people and you've your contribution is like it's really priceless and there's no way to even um right size it so i'm thankful uh and grateful and uh can't to wait to chat with you again soon yeah we'll talk later and thank you so much and thank you so much for nice words i mean i get so much out of this so it, i mean this is also giving me a very exciting life being able to do this talk to politicians, hold lectures around Norway and in other countries. It's just fantastic. And all the gratefulness I get from every Armenian is uh, is a gift. It is a gift. And that I talk to Armenians everywhere. Jerusalem now, I met 20 Armenians just on the street because I have this flag Yeah, that you don't see, but I have a T-shirt with an Armenian flag yeah. and an Artsakh yeah. flag. And every Armenian would stop me, you know, and it's like, Bareb, Duhayes. Uh, uh, and and we start talking a little bit and uh, yeah I, I get friends you know that's um, that's fantastic it, yeah. well thank you again Sven well that was my interview with Sven Eric Rise a truly inspiring person uh, not only he's a school principal who's also an author and an activist but you know he's devoted his his career and many 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 years to speak for those who don't have a voice those that are being ignored which is currently. Um, Armenians of Artsakh who are under siege by Azerbaijan. And there aren't that many people who care to talk about it, report about it, write about it, especially uh, non-Armenians. So he's truly an inspiration, a true honorary Armenian. And I'm very pleased that I got to chat with him. Uh, thank you, Svan, for your time, uh, for your idealism, uh, for your relentless uh, activism. I'm, I'm truly grateful. 
Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible. And KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. The Blunt Post with Vic.